0: everybody to kickserveradio.com. Tennis on air with myself, Andy Zoden, world former number one, Lander winner of seven major championships, former Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. We are very excited about this week's show, which we are calling underrated and overlooked. And while we are in the midst of a break in the sport of tennis, it gives us an opportunity to take if not a 30,000-foot look, maybe even a 100,000-foot look at the sport. Take a look at the history of the game. Take a look at some of the things that may have been overlooked. We've got famed tennis journalist Joel Drucker. We've got Steve Flink with us as well. I'm going to start by introducing Joel Drucker. He wrote, Jimmy Connor saved my life. He wrote, Don't Bet on It, which was a beautiful tribute to his late wife, Joan Edwards, whom he spent 28 years of his life with. He now blogs and and is a columnist for tennischannel.com. First of all, Joel, welcome to kickserveradio.com. It's really good to
1: have you with us. Great to be here. So exciting. You guys just getting the show going a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, great people. Terrific.
0: Well, we're part of Tennis Channel podcast network, and we're very excited about that. And I want to mention that Matt Spilander is now the owner of Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And Matt's good to see you again tonight. Hope you're doing well.
2: I'm doing well, thanks, Andy. I'm very excited to see you and Johnny, and uh, my friend Joel. We haven't spoken since the Australian Open, so this is very exciting. And Johnny Levine,
0: who is the founder of the Arizona Tennis Classic, and as I mentioned, former Texas Longhorn All-American. Johnny, good to see you tonight as well.
3: Good to see you, Andy, and uh, very, very happy to be a part of this show and have Joel, uh, one of my favorite tennis guys, join us uh, Joel has been a guy that um, whenever I get around him, the, the tennis talk just goes on and on, and sometimes it's, it's hours before we finish. He's uh, a wealth of knowledge in tennis, and we're real happy to have you, Joel.
0: And we're going to experience a little bit of that right now, because in our underrated and overlooked show tonight, uh, Joel, we've asked you to take a look at some big picture game changers in the sport of tennis, in the history of the sport, things that have made Uh, an impression on tennis fans, both between the lines and off the court. So I'm going to let you take it from there and give us your three top, underrated, overlooked game changers in the history of the sport of tennis.
1: All right. Thanks, Andy. Well, there are three that came to mind when you posed this to me, and they covered the way the game has changed, the texture of the game, the history of the game. And the first that people don't always remember was 1970 in America. Cigarette advertising was banned on television. Starting on January 1st, 1971, no more cigarette ads on television. So it's 1970. And the Philip Morris Company has this cigarette brand that they've been out for about two years, aimed very much at women, called Virginia Slims. So now Virginia Slims is a, has a marketing budget, has an advertising budget, that they want to reach women, they can't advertise on television. Well, guess what? Guess what's also coming around then in the fall of nineteen seventy are tennis events, a woman's circuit. Gladys Heldman, the publisher and founder of World Tennis Magazine, is working with Billie Jean King and, and eight other players who are called the original nine. And they start a circuit. And it's Gladys helping go into Joe Cullman, the CEO of Philip Morris, who she'd known for years. Philip Morris was Marlboro. Philip Morris was became a big sponsor of the U.S. Open. So it was kind of this perfect storm of events. So now it's the end of 1970, 1971. Virginia Slims, well, we need to reach women with messages about our cigarette. Wow, what better vehicle than this new Women's Pro Tennis? So that's, that's Megatrend one.
0: I'd like to hear what Mats might have to say about how the sport of tennis was able to capitalize on this ban and see if you have anything to add, because in Sweden, you guys were probably rolling your own in those days. Mats, i got to believe. yeah.
2: Actually, you have to be honest. I met my wife, uh, Sonia, and her maiden name was Mulholland, and she was one of the fashion models that posed for Virginia Slims oh, wow. in the early '80s. So I played the U.S. Open in '87 and '88 while I lived in Greenwich. And I'm above Hutchinson River Parkway, there's a big poster of my wife smoking a cigarette. Of course, she's not a smoker.
0: Johnny, as a tournament owner. When you make the decisions to bring on some of the sponsors that you bring on, obviously, uh, the women's tour was in a situation where they didn't have the luxury of being able to pick and choose who they were going to have to be able to fund their tour, but you may be in a slightly different position as the owner of the Arizona Tennis Classic. What are some of the things that you uh, use to make determinations as to who you want to bring on to have representing your event?
3: Well, I think Andy, we try to, we have some businesses in the, in the Phoenix area that are supporting the the event and, you know, we do get a lot of kids coming out. So it's important to have, you know, very solid businesses and, and, and ones that uh, are very respectful. Um, the tour does have some categories that are off limits, obviously, you know, you have gambling and things like that, which has been a, a bit of a problem in the sport. So, we're very careful with who we bring in as sponsors, and we're thinking about the sponsors themselves, the fans, and, the, and, and mostly the kids. I mean, it's just important to have really good businesses that are in the community that are well-respected, and um, we pretty much uh, follow that guideline.
1: Thanks, Johnny. Okay, Joey, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for number two. All right, number two is the, uh, the ascent of the two-handed backhands, beginning in the early 70s. The, Prior to that, it was very much a one handed backhand world, and the two handed backhand really really turned the tables on the net rushers, really gave groundstrokers a way in the game. I mean, prior to that, if you serve in volley versus a one hander, you were pretty much going to have a good chance to take charge of the point with a volley. And the two handed backhand really turned it around, and people, Connors Borg, Chris Everett, they really legitimized it, and then it created the way it made it credible among people learning the game. I mean, by 1980, I bet you. 75, 80% plus of players were learning the two-hander most of all. And so, and so that, cha- and that has changed the way you play the game. The, the one-handed backhand is used as, a, I call that, like a business development opportunity creator. It helps you get to net, kind of a versatile Swiss army knife of a shot, not necessarily meant to be a long-term rally shot. It, can, it could be if you're playing another one-hander, but the one-hander was meant to help get you to net. Two-hander created a new model, and, you know, Matts, you did – to enhance your game, to become number one in the world, you went back to kind of the old school to add, to add the slice back. in so then you could have both the thing that could help you in, in the rallies and never miss. And the thing that could kind of mix things up an approach shot, a drop shot. So that's, that's my number two, the two handed backhand.
0: Well, I'll just jump in and say, it's a small sample size here with the four of us, Joel, you and I hit one handers. We know what became of our career as players Johnny and Matt's have two-handers, and we saw what happened with those guys. Matt's talk about how Borg had such a heavy influence, or was it more Connors? Was it a combination of all of the uh, aforementioned that, that that Joel mentioned?
2: No, Bjorn Borg is not just an influence on Swedish tennis. I mean, Bjorn Borg is the way that the guys are swinging today. They're looping the backswing on the forehand. Uh, they're using two hands. Most guys using two hands. Borg turns out didn't really have a semi-western grip on the forehand. It just seemed like it. It looked like it when he took his his racket back. But the loop on the backswing is what we all did. And see what happened to Swedish tennis in the eighties. It wasn't that we were much better. It's just that we had a technique that was so new and modern that it's still used today. I had coaches telling me that, no, 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 you can't loop your backswing. That's just Bjorn. He's a, he, he's a little bit of a freak. You don't want to do what he does. But of course, to be cool, you want it to loop your back. So for me, I think Borg uh, uh, made it hip to stay at the baseline. And he made it hip to loop your backswing um, and um, let the guys come to the net. Be a man. You guys come in, I'll give you. You're a good passing shot and a run for your money underneath your shoelaces.
0: When I teach the sport, the guy whose backhand I've always felt like was a great model for the average club player that could take that level of backhand into the upper level of the sport was yours Johnny I always felt like it was very simple and very crisp and very clean and allowed you to accommodate pace it allowed you to return well and allowed you to stay in points and sort of manage the bigger games that were coming at you talk about the advent of your backhand and where you saw it part ways with maybe the way Mats was hitting the ball
3: yeah my backhand was more compact and um, it didn't have a lot of topspin on it, but it was a very simple shot. And I really, the short backswing enabled me to to return well, Andy. And that's where I think my backhand excelled was especially on the return. It was a steady shot. It wasn't a super weapon, but I never, you know, it it kept me in all points and it was always a reliable shot. But I think the foundation that I had, I had a, a very good coach with fundamentals at a young age taught very simple strokes and short backswings, which is not really what's out there today. It's different. But, um, but again, I think uh, that short backswing for me gave me the, the return capability, which, which ended up being one of my weapons, uh, especially in doubles.
2: I mean, that's really when you're asking uh, about two-handed backhands. Uh, Harold Solomon. Harold Solomon had a, had a good two-hander. Uh, Eddie Dips had a good two-hander. Eddie was a little more versatile. And then we came with Aaron Krikstein, good two-handed backhand. Uh, and I'm still not talking about backhands that can be compared on the same day with some of the Swedish backhands. There was something about the American backhand that was made for hard courts and returning. There was something about the, the Swedish two-handed backhand that was kind of made for clay courts and hitting the ball a little more in front, and you could get a little more spin on the ball, uh, which kind of was a little more like a one-handed backhand, I think. So uh, I think Agassi was the first American who actually had a great two-hander that was hit in front of him, and he was able to generate
1: not just power but a lot of spin. And Joel, i like to hear your opinion. Well, I think the American return – and I think Johnny might have been this. The American return and, and Connors as an example of it was designed to counterattack the net rusher. You know, there are a lot of Stan Smiths and John Newcombs. Yeah. And so the premise of the two-handed return was uh, you, you could block it, you could get it down, get it down to the guy's feet. And that's what Connors, you know, take it early. And that was different than the, than the chip, you know, than the one-handed chip. So the Swedish guys, you, you, ha- you could get the whip and the dip. Right. It was a different type of shape of a shot than the American, right. Clay courts have to generate racket head speed, whereas Americans, you know, hard courts, we're not as good at generating pace. You know, you able to generate pace more on clay courts than hard court.
0: So you made the comment, Joel, in reference to Matt, that it was when he developed that beautiful slice backhand and added it to his arsenal with his great two-hander. That, that was really what put him over the top to become the number one player in the world. I guess my question to you, Matt, is was that by design Was that sort of accidental? It just so happened that you developed this nice slice backhand and, oh, by the way, I'm now the number one player in the world? Or was that absolutely uh, part of the game plan in preparing to play a guy like Lendl on a hard court uh, at the U.S. Open?
2: Very little, Andy, was designed to do anything in terms of learning. Um, We just were, were told and forced to learn how to play on really fast indoor courts, and then really slow and heavy clay courts. Uh, And my two older brothers have a one-handed backhand. Uh, I love Yannick Noah's one-handed slice. The late, great Peter McNamara. Victor Pecci has an unbelievable slice. So I think it was more that I just need to learn how to slice. And then I realized against a few players, uh, it's going to help me. But trust me, when your slice becomes better and better, your two-handed backhand – becomes worse and worse. It's very difficult to get both at a very high level. So I lost because one-handed backhand, the difference is racket head is usually above your grip. Once you put your racket head above your grip on a two-handed topspin backhand, forget it. Now you're talking about a little bit like a Joe Wilford-Songa backhand uh, and uh, very hard to generate pace or spin.
3: But let me ask uh, Joel a quick question, Andy. I'm curious because... When Mats came out with that one hander, that great slice late in his career, I don't know that there had really been many guys with two handers that had a slice like that. I mean, I'm a guy that had a two hander. I was always in awe of the one handed backhand. I thought it was the greatest thing. And I would go out on the court sometimes and screw around trying to hit a one hander. I thought, I mean, I, I just always had fun doing it. But seeing Mats do it, being, having that great two hander, and then developing this. Amazing slice, really out of nowhere. Was there anyone else that you can think of, uh, Joel? Well, you know, I remember. I remember as a Connors fan watching Borg ruin a lot
1: of Wimbledon's for me. By, um, by, he had a little improv, this little jazz improv hack. It makes me think also like an ancestor of the slice that Nadal has. I mean, with all due respect, and and Matts and Andy, you seen me play. I think my slice technique is prettier than Nadal's, but it's it just kind of worked. You know, it's like you got to hand it to, like, Borg. I got to be of Wimbledon. I got to get the ball low to his forehand. And you had this kind of jazz improv, and he worked it. But as far as something as conscientious as what Matt subsequently did with it, dealing with these players, and actually, and this is going to have implications for my number three, Andy, by the way, so we're, not, we're, we're still on message here, is I think Matt's thing seemed a little bit more at a high level, you know, and, and against the best players. And so it looked – yeah, it was a pretty slick shot, but you know, it was, it wasn't Ken Roswell. You weren't deploying it like Ken Roswell is the comprehensive tool of your game. You're using it as another foil and let's do this and let's improv. And it's pretty, it's pretty neat. So you want to hear the three, Andy?
0: I absolutely am ready for number three, because I think that's a big one and I think Matt's is going to have a lot to say. And I think Johnny will too.
1: The number three one is the changing of surfaces and seeds. The game, starting around 2001, particularly 2002 at Wimbledon, becomes a lot more homogenous. The grass becomes slower, maybe the clay a little faster. You'll know more about this, Mats. 32 seeds. So the, the chances for the best players to do well remain across all the slams, whereas I used to call this the, the sphere of influence era. Sergio Bruguera, Thomas Muster, Richard Krajicek, Gordon Ivanisevic. I gobble up these goodies, you gobble up those. And, and you, Mats, and you too, Johnny, you are you were competing in the in the wild west of Supreme Court green set. Victor Pecci, um, Tim Mayotte, all these styles were still in play. The world was a lot bigger then. Then the world gets flat, and we're not seeing that much technical difference between David Goffin, Lina, and Andre Agassi. You know, everyone's kind of learning, le- working off the same playbook of how the game is played. So if I'm good, if I'm if I'm Novak Djokovic, yeah. There's no one else coming along with other other stuff. There's no incoming guys, so it's kind of. I'm not discounting these great players, but when you have surfaces more the same, and then you throw in kind of the uh, the 32 seeds, now the upset factor. I mean, uh, now I'm number one seed. I don't have to play anyone higher ranked than 33 the first couple of rounds, first few rounds. That's 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 pretty. That's a little more relaxing. Then I mean, you think of all the. All the, all the 18s and 19s who you were looking out for, Mats, those are pretty dangerous guys when it's 19 and he's not seated. I mean, you're Derek Rastaños, people like that. They're good players. So that's number three is the, the surfaces and the seeds kind of, kind of going together.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think the seeds is way too many to have 32 seeds. I agree with that. I think the first one would be more interesting. I think what happened in 2007 and 2008 – was that uh, unfortunately Rafa Rafa and Roger played such unbelievable matches at Wimbledon that every tournament director and specifically Grand Slam tournament directors, they need to have number one and number two in the world play in the finals because it was Roger and Rafa. Let's bake the surfaces and the tennis balls Uh, somewhat to favor those two guys because we need them in the finals. So I think it was great to have them in finals. It's great to to still have them in finals, of course. But uh, I think the downside of having that is that they made the surfaces kind of similar and then they can get through on everything. So I couldn't agree more. I remember playing against certain guys on a clay court and on a hard court and on a grass court. And if the tactics were the same... It doesn't matter what surface you're playing on. Uh, That's not what decides. It's the tactics you apply that decides who you're going to have trouble against. It doesn't matter um, the surface. So I think that it's uh, much, much easier to dominate today than it was in the 80s. In fact, it was impossible because of the different surfaces uh, and the different tennis balls and much faster. But, of course, it's much, much harder work today uh, to be a Novak Djokovic, or Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, because the consistency these guys have, because the surfaces are similar, they are supposed to be getting to finals every single week. It doesn't matter if it's in Basel.
0: And then does that just add that much more credence to what Borg did, which was to win the French and Wimbledon? Uh, I think he did it in the same year three times in a row. Compared to doing that now, doing that then, is that a drastic difference based on Joel's assessment about the, uh, the smoothing out of the surfaces to have them be so similar.
2: Yeah, I really don't think that uh, so far anyone has achieved. In terms of the just, we're talking about the tennis and the uh, adaptation that Borg made from clay to grass. that. A difference is massive. It's. I don't think there's a player. Of course, Roger Federer most probably can adapt to anything. But that 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 change for Bjorn Borg is unbelievable in terms of uh, an athletic performance.
1: I want to add something to that, Andy. To Matt's point is that not only was it unbelievable that Borg could do it, but there again, there were there were tough guys in both of those. There were the clay court guys. He had his Vilases. He had his Jose Higareses. He had. Certain people he had to vanquish on the clay. And then he had, and then two weeks later, not even three weeks later, he had to go over to Wimbledon to bad grass. Victor Amaya, Mark Edmondson, Vijay Amitraj, all these guys had Borg, Roscoe Town in the finals. I mean, these guys are rough to play on grass. And it was kind of, I remember growing up, watching Borg win Wimbledon. It, it wasn't, Nadal became almost expect, has become almost expected. We, we saw that pretty quickly the first couple of years. But Borg, he wins Wimbledon the first time without losing a set. Wow. Okay. He does it again. He does it again. How, it's like each time was a little bit of a, of a mini Houdini. And next thing you know, the guys won Wimbledon five straight times, but it, it wasn't like, like Rafa became within two years. We said the kingdom of Rafa. He, he's the king of Roland Garros. Borg. Wow. Each time. Wow. That, that was, how'd he do that? And he did it. It's amazing. Well, we started
0: out the segment with Johnny Levine proclaiming you can talk for hours on end about tennis with Joel Drucker. And I think you guys saw a little bit of a taste of it right there. When we come back, we are going to be joined by yet another famed tennis journalist. As we promised earlier, Steve Flink will be joining us. So stay tuned. You're listening to kickserveradio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. We're also joined by the great Mats Lander, Texas Longhorn All-American, former All-American Johnny Levine. Thank you so much, Joel, for joining us. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you guys. And
0: we'll be back with Steve Flink. Right after this, don't go away. Welcome back, everybody. Kickserveradio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. My partners in crime, the great Mats V. Launder, Johnny Levine, and now we are joined, as promised, by Steve Flink. He is the author of the greatest tennis matches of all time. Uh, He is with Tennis Channel, former editor of World Tennis Magazine, and was inducted in the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2017. Steve, it's so great to have
4: you with us. Hey Andy, great to be with you. I'm very intimidated by this lineup, though. I don't know. Matt, and Johnny, and you, how am I going to handle this?
0: We're pretty overrated, and that's why this is called underrated and overlooked, because we don't belong in this thing. But, Steve, we asked you to talk, obviously being the author of the greatest tennis matches of all time, to come up with, with a handful and maybe limit it to, I know you've got you know an encyclopedia of great matches in your mind, but let's talk about three that really stand out as being ones that if you weren't careful, you might have let these slip through the cracks in your mind. And it was just something that you shouldn't do. Give us your top three that we just don't want to forget about.
4: Andy, that was a tough assignment you gave me there. But I've, I've come up with three that I'm I'm pretty happy with. The first is actually 50 years ago, coming up on the 50-year anniversary of a great battle for the American number one ranking of 1970. Between Cliff Ritchie from Texas and Stan Smith from California. Stan was just starting to come into his own. Cliff had been sort of on the cusp of this for a long time. And they played in the semifinals. The Pacific Coast Championship's out in Berkeley, California, on the hard courts. And it goes to a fifth-set tiebreak. Cliff had led all the way, won the first set, won the third. Stan kept coming back. They go to the fifth-set tiebreak, And this is the original sudden-death tiebreak. Wow, so here it is, four points all. Cliff has actually saved a match point. To get it to four-all, he's serving, misses the first serve, comes in on the second one, and Stan rips the return, and Cliff dives for a backhand volley. And now he has to scramble to get back up. He's just guessing where Stan is going. He has no idea. He lunges to his right and hits a forehand volley winner. He doesn't realize until he's going to tumble over twice and hears the cheers and sees the look on Stan's face that he's won the match. So sudden death. 5-4 5-4 tiebreak fifth set that seals the number one American ranking for Cliff Ritchie. And as Matt knows, the ATP rankings were not in existence yet. They didn't form until 72. They didn't start world rankings until 73. So the American ranking meant more at that time, especially to these players. They, they took great pride in being the best in the country. So that's my first selection.
0: Well, let me just start by saying, getting to know Cliff Ritchie a little bit, uh, you know, obviously the author of Acing Depression, and, and he's overcome a lot in his life. And I know that that was one of the uh, stellar moments in his career because when he came to Denver for an event, we definitely that one was addressed at dinner that night. And I know that you're very close, Matts, with Stan. Is that something that he probably has gone out of his way not to talk about? At different dinner parties
2: <laughs> well you know we have uh, a standing joke with uh, stan smith and i heard this uh through and with yannick noah uh because obviously yannick noah is or was a good friend of arthur Ashe, who i believe saw yannick down in cameroon and we know how close arthur ash was to stan smith and noah said to to uh, stan while i was talking to yannick he said you know stan there are people in the world who thinks you're just a sneaker, <laughs> and he oh, what? And he said, "Well, Yannick, there are people in the world who thinks that you're just a singer. You can't hit a tennis ball to save your life." So I know Stan Smith can take it, but I think that Stan would be uh, the classiest, most graceful winner or loser of a match of that magnitude. He's a great man, Stan Smith.
4: No doubt about it. And the pictures of Cliff afterwards holding his head in utter astonishment that he'd done it. So I couldn't resist in in putting that one as my first match on the list. Are you ready for the second? Absolutely. All right. So the second, it was a women's final at the US Open of 1985 between the number two and three seeds, Martina Navratilova. who Martina, keep in mind at this stage, is in the midst of a Five year stretch where she lost fourteen matches over five years from eighty-two through eighty-six. Seventy out of eighty-four tournaments. Just incredible dominance. And Hannah, of course, was so gifted. And these two the two of them were just coming in at, at all costs. It was a really a, an attacker's match. They were coming in behind return of serve, serve, volleying a lot. You had both players at the net frequently for some really exhilarating exchanges. And Hannah got off to a blazing start and was up five-love and had a set point on Martina. serve. Two more set points in the next game, but didn't put her away. The next thing you know, it's five-all, and Hannah has to fight off eight break points just to get her way to 6-5 and eventually to the tiebreak, which she played beautifully and won on a, on a succession of winners at the end of the tiebreak from 3-1 at 7-3. Then Martina blitzes through the second set, 6-1. And we go to the third, and Hannah breaks and goes up 5-3 serves to the match, can't close her out, go to another tiebreak, and Hannah, with some brilliant shot-making, goes wins the first six points of the tiebreak and eventually closes it out seven points or two. But I think it's one of the most exciting women's matches I've ever seen because it was atypical. The Both of them attacking so much, coming in behind returns, serving and volleying consistently on first serves and selectively on second serves. It was really fun to watch them come at each other like and the shot making from both was spectacular. And Hannah, who had beaten Chrissy Everett in the semis, beats Martina for the title in that third set tie break and ended that sequence where both Chrissy and Martina had won all the Grand Slam tournaments from the beginning of 82 all the way up to this eighty five US Open Final. She ended their dominance and that was probably a good thing for the women's game to have somebody of Hannah's talent make her way into the mix at that stage and win another major. So that's my second choice.
0: Is it fair to say, Steve, that and, and I'll go to Matt's in just a quick second, but that it's an overlooked or underrated match simply because it wasn't Everett Navratilova?
4: Yes, exactly. It wasn't Everett Navratilova, and, and I also think it was just it's overlooked, period, because we think more. Yes, about Everett Navratilova. We think about Graf Navratilova. We think about Graf Sellis. So that's that's there's, there's those are all good reasons why it's it's underrated.
2: Yeah. I would like to to say Hanna Mandlikova is two years older than me. And I played at my first European junior championship in Prerov, Czechoslovakia in 1978. Uh, And she's playing in the 16 and under. And I asked my Swedish coach if he could ask the Czechoslovakian coach if I could please hit with Hanna Mandlikova. Because to me, Hana Mandlikova had the nicest, smoothest ground strokes, right. beautiful one-handed backhand, and I actually remember that match because obviously I was playing uh, the U.S. Open from 1982 up to '96 or '95. But Hana Mandlikova, I think that match was special because it was the first time that I had seen Martina not being outplayed. At the serve and volley or net game, but, but literally facing somebody who had better hands than Martina Navratilova, not as good physically, even though she was smooth as anything, but not as good physically, obviously confidence, not to say, but in terms of finesse, I think Hanna Manlikova was up there with Martina and potentially had even better hands, which is why that match was amazing.
4: Yeah, I think, that, I think that, uh, that if you took another look at it on the, on the video now, Matt, Matt that, that viewpoint of yours, Matt's, would be reinforced. I mean, she was remarkable. And that's why she was so comfortable coming in behind returns with Martina also serving in volley and then punching the volley right by Martina. It was pretty remarkable stuff.
0: Okay, Steve, the third and final match of your triumvirate takes us into the 21st century with two of the big three.
4: Yeah, we're going to make a big leap here, Andy, for all the way from 85 to 2010. And this was during the period, I think Matts will remember this well, where every year we would get Djokovic and Federer at the U.S. Open. Started in 2007 in the finals, people thought Novak might be ready to do it, and he had, a, he had served for the first set and had five set points, but Roger came back and won in straight, and then they play again in 2008 in, this, in the semis, and Roger wins again. In 2009 in the semis, Roger again. So now, we're, for the fourth year in a row, they're clashing. Novak and Roger go right down to the wire in this semifinal, and it was an oddly fluctuating match because – you know, you had Novak losing a very tight 7-5 first that comes back for an easy win in the second, 6-1. And then he loses a tight third to Roger 7-5. And Roger looks like very confident, ready to take command. But Novak comes back to win the 4th 6 2 So we go to the fifth. And now it's both men at their best. And it comes down to the wire. And Novak serving 4-5, 15-40. And he double match point down on his own serve. Roger is defending during this point. Novak's got control of the rally, but Roger defends well until finally he hits a slice back at it, kind of a slightly high trajectory, and Novak moves into kind of no man's land and just goes for it with a swing volley winner inside out and nails it for a winner. And then on the next match point, he hits a forehand inside-in winner from the baseline, Roger daring him to come up with a shot. He does. And Novak holds on and then breaks Roger in the next game and then manages to fend him off, had a tough game, had to save a break point in the last game, wins it 7-5 in the fifth. Very significant because Novak at that time, Andy, was down 10-5 in the rivalry. He now has has the three-match lead. So since then, Novak with a 22-13 edge over Roger. I think that was a turning point for Novak in many ways. This was the first of the three, this 2010 U.S. Open semi, where Novak recovered from double match point down to beat Roger Federer, and I'd like to ask Mats a question: Does Novak get enough credit, Mats, for pulling off these spectacular comebacks to beat someone of Roger Federer's greatness three times from double match point down, all at majors, two in the semis of the Open, and one in the final of Wimbledon? D- does he get enough credit, or is Roger perhaps over criticized? <laughs>
2: I think Novak, it's going to be uh, Novak is not, is not going to get enough credit for for his career until he's uh, passed both Roger and Rafa. First of all, um, because of just the nature of Roger and Rafa's rivalry, Roger and Rafa's appearance uh, on the tennis court, where they're like magnets, and I think Novak is just a normal normal tennis player, a normal guy. Has, has some ups and downs emotionally, went through a couple of crazy shots. They went in. I like that you brought it up because I think it changed Novak as a player. I think that he was desperate in those two matches, desperate on match points and pulled it off. And since then realized that I can pull it off if I go for it, but now he's not desperate anymore. Right. He hits himself out of trouble. And I've never seen anyone do that like he does. And that's where he needs a lot of credit because he decides uh, the destiny of his own um, of his own matches and the outcome these days, which to me is unbelievably gutsy.
0: To think that we would be talking about a semifinal at the U.S. Open between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic as one of the great, underrated or overlooked matches of all time. Uh, seems a little counterintuitive, but that is the case. And Steve, you make some great points.
4: Andy, just a quick question again. I I hope I'm not harassing Mats with these questions. But my question again to Mats is here they play 50 times and, and you also have Novak and Rafa 55 times. You played most of your rivals in the neighborhood of 15, 20 times. Doesn't it amaze you that these guys can still be I mean, as Andy just mentioned, 2010, and then we get the 19 Wimbledon final, we get the semis of Australia this year, Novak beat him again. Isn't it astonishing to you the, the enduring greatness of these guys and that these rivalries could endure the way they have it? It, while yours was more typical of the day, that there was a, a window of maybe four or five years where you as top players came up against each other?
2: Yeah, and also the, 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 the rivalries were completely different because if I played John McEnroe – uh, and I played him a couple of times at Roland Garros. That match was a certain way. And then I would play him at Wimbledon, which I did, uh, I think, once only. But that match was were played in a completely different way. So it wasn't even like I was playing the same guy. And the difference is that Novak, and especially Novak and Rafa, they're playing against the same guy, and it's the same tactics, and they have to worry about the same strength and weaknesses of each other. Yeah. So in a way, tactically, I suppose it's easier, but I think that's why you see the uh, momentum often with Novak and and Rafa. I remember in 2011, I believe, uh, 2011, Novak beat Rafa in six finals. In 2012, in Australia, they had that five hours and 53 minute thing. and And every match was exactly the same. The level was absolutely insane. But I don't understand how they can bring it. Every single time these three guys play each other in any tournament, on any surface, they bring this. I don't like losing to you across the net. And you might be a nice guy, but I hate losing to you. And somehow they, they bring their te- best tennis emotionally. They bring it every time. I don't get
0: it. Talk about bringing it every time. Matt Svilander, Steve Flink. These guys are going toe-to-toe right now. It's great stuff. Johnny and I are just sitting back and enjoying the show. But there is more show to get to, and when we come back, we've got a little bit more of our own panel. Uh, Your regular KickServeRadio.com boys have got a few underrated and overlooked things that we want to discuss as well. We'll be right back, so don't go away. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Be right back. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Tennis on Air with myself, Andy Zoden. World former number one, Mats V. Launder. Former Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. Final segment of Underrated and Overlooked. We want to thank Joel Drucker and Steve Flink for joining us in the previous segments. And, Johnny, I want to turn this over to you because you did some research into... Certain, certain tennis events and, and, and matches and things that have happened that have been extremely unique, and although extremely unique, still remain somewhat under the radar, I think, after all these years. And there's one in particular that I know you're going to allude to that maybe brings us into where we stand currently. I won't say anything more than that, but what were a couple of the matches and some of the things uh, that you look back on in your memory that you find to be something that you don't want to see people forget?
3: I think, uh, Andy, one of the matches that comes to mind is the, uh, the 1999 French Open final with, with, with Agassi and Medvedev. I think that was uh, a match that um, you know, may, might be a bit underrated for, for a few reasons. I think you've got Agassi, who had had two French Open finals previously that, that he was favored in and um, had not won the French and, and had been expected to win it, was down 6-2, 6-1 in that final and was getting killed by by Andre Medvedev uh, there was a rain delay in the third set i believe and um, he was able to take a break go off the court brad gilbert infamously gave him some some great advice that 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 brad uh, typically does he's a great strategist and i think he really uh, was able to connect with with andre because andre came back and won the next three sets 6-4 6-3 6-4 to claim his uh, his first and, and only French Open, but gave him the career Grand Slam. So I th- I think I'd have to put that match in there. The second one that I got such an enjoyment out of watching that I don't know is high up on many people's list. but when you think about it, it, I think it has to be there. And that's the 2015 U.S. Open third-round match between Fognini and Nadal. That is a match that um, really was mind-boggling to watch to see how Fognini was able to come back. Uh, first time that Nadal, in in I think it was 150 Slam matches to that point, had lost after being up two sets to, to to zero. He he was up two sets in that match. Fognini came back and won it. Had 70 winners in that match and just just played. Mind-boggling tennis to beat him, and I think he, that year he beat him three out of four times. So that match was a level of tennis that that I don't think anyone has ever seen from from Fabio Fognini, and that that was a, a real fun one to watch. But I'll go to the third one, Andy, and that that's a 2009 Davis Cup uh, first round match that involved Mats Wilander, our co-host here, uh, who was the captain of the Swedish team, and it was an interesting. Uh, Davis Cup match because there was some protests going on in the city and, and there was a lot of pressure for that match to to be careful of um, what was going on outside and, and in, in Sweden at that time with protests with Israel coming in to, to play Sweden. And so the mayor of, of Malmö, Sweden at that time, elected to to keep the, the match going, uh, have the match, but have no fans which is something obviously we're, we're dealing with right now, potentially with tennis with no fans. So I think it might have been the first or second tennis event that didn't have fans. And in the, in the match, I mean, Sweden was seated in that Davis Cup, was, was heavily favored to win. And Israel came out on top three to two in, in, in the rubber. All four singles matches went five sets. The final rubber was eight, six in the fifth. A duty seller, or actually a Harold Levy beat Vince Aguirre 8-6 in the 5th, some amazing matches. And I would love to get Matt's perspective on this because that must have been something that I know they hoisted Levy uh, on the shoulders and it was an incredible environment with no fans. But uh, nonetheless, um, love to hear your thoughts on that, Matts, because that definitely comes to mind as an underlooked uh, match.
2: Yeah, um, definitely, Johnny. I mean, obviously I was there and I'm just going to uh, say it uh, to start off with. Sweden actually won the Davis Cup in 1975 uh, with Bjorn Borg in the team, and, and they played against Chile in Sweden, and there was no fans allowed there because there was massive demonstrations because I think the military was running Chile uh, and uh, dictators and whatnot, we thought, in Sweden. The reason I'm telling you is Sweden is always in the forefront when it comes to the anti-apartheid with South Africa. We were the first country to boycott players that had played in South Africa, couldn't play in Sweden. And, of course, with uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, that was the thing going on there as well. And they, we were asked to kind of take a side. And uh, obviously our team was like, we're not taking sides here. We, either you let us play or tell us we're not playing, we're not making Uh, a political acknowledgement in either way. Sports is sports. So uh, we were supposed to have about 5,000 people watching. um, And we have a lot of people watching. And suddenly we had, I think, maybe 50 people, uh, girlfriends and parents and whatnot. And to be honest, you could not tell if there was people or no people because these players could care less. They were so fired up because of the team event. So much easier. But the matches and the quality uh, and the suspense in those four singles matches, for me as a captain, best Davis Cup match that I've ever been part of because the level was very high. I've seen higher, but the level was very high. But the intensity that Duty Sela and Harold Levy brought, and then of course the Swedish guys with Thomas Johansson, and Andreas it was incredible. And the other thing is, that was a great draw for us to play against Israel. Uh, we beat Israel in Israel a couple of years earlier. We played in Tel Aviv at the tennis center there. Uh, and, uh, and then we come home and, we're like, okay, well, we, we have to beat Israel because the only way we we're going to stay in the world group was to get to the quarterfinals. Um, and they were the big underdogs. But once Dudi Sela started playing, we realized oh, my goodness, this guy's so good. Um, and, uh, and he was, so yeah, Israel won. but to be honest, it didn't make any difference, uh, if they were fans or not to the players, it seemed maybe because it was Davis cup.
0: Great stuff and great history for you to be a part of Matt. and your recollection of it. Johnny's great. I've got, I've got three of my own here, guys, and I'm just going to run through these as part of our underrated overlooked category. I've got an underrated broadcaster who I just want to give a shout out to, and that's Robbie Koenig who I think the world of him, and I think not only do I see him as an incredibly talented broadcaster who's been uh, 13 years an international commentator. He's done all the Masters 1000s, all the majors. Uh, he hosted the match in Africa for the Roger Federer Foundation, which was Roger versus Rafa in Cape Town, you guys probably realize, and that was uh, the most attended match in the history of the sport. And uh, and now Robbie works for, for Amazon Prime UK. He was a nice doubles player in his own right, uh, with five doubles titles, including uh, getting to the semifinals of the 98 U.S. Open and, and got to 28 in the world. But I just think he has a flair with his vocabulary. Uh, he has a tendency to keep the match exciting. He brings a very interesting perspective to the match. And being that you do the same thing that he does, Mats, what are your thoughts on Robbie as a broadcaster? I know we've talked about it off air. I know you think highly of him, but I'd like to, to let our listeners hear a little bit about what you think there.
2: Well, obviously, I know Robbie very well. Um, He happens to live in a town in South Africa called Hillcrest, which is the town where I married my South African wife, Sonia Mulholland, now Sonia Wielander. So we talk about that all the time. And Robbie is excellent, excellent commentator. Um, I think that you can't get any better than Robbie Koenig at commentating. The only way you can be different is if you have experienced and achieved more as a professional player. Because I always feel like commentators can take it to a certain level. And once they go past a certain level, you really can't rely or trust or nor do I want to hear what they have to say because they haven't experienced and now we're speculating. So I think the best commentators to me are the ones that take it just to the limit of where they have been themselves as a player and then, don't speculate too far into the next level of of uh, winning tennis matches. And I think Robbie, I couldn't agree more. He does an excellent job um, uh, with uh, kind of reaching to to his limit in terms of experience.
0: Let me move on to one of what I think is one of the, the most underrated men's doubles players of all time. And I'm not just trying to blow smoke toward Tennis Channel here, but... In watching Mark Knowles play, I always felt like he had a certain flair about his doubles game. Well, let's put it this way. I went down to a a wedding recently, and Philip Farmer got married down in Mexico. And Andrew Painter comes out uh, onto the court at 10 in the morning, and he was barefooted and had some sort of a drink in his hand. And he comes out and he's just hitting the ball barefooted and he's still hitting a butte. That's what Mark Knowles reminded me of. But like he would do that in a major, like he was just so smooth and so carefree guy won 55 titles, got to number one in the world in 2002, won three majors, narrowly missed winning the career grand slam and doubles by losing a Wimbledon final. All of those with Daniel Nestor. What do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I think you're correct because I think that to me, so, so guys that are underrated, Uh, and overlooked are usually players that look uh, like they're doing things correct, uh, the correct way, very simple. And when you do things the correct way and they're very simple, you are competing with everybody. Mark Knowles is one of those guys that, yes, you can tell clearly that he was one of the best players in the world, but he didn't do anything exceptionally well, and he obviously had no weaknesses. So I think when you have a game like that, being a right-hander as well, you got to beat them all. You've got to beat everybody on all the different surfaces with, with consistency and clean and proper technique. Now, if you compare, take Mark Knowles, and we compare that to Daniel Nestor. Daniel Nestor had two things going for him. He had a great serve, plus he was left-handed. Somehow he figured out a volley uh, very well, even though he had a two-handed backhand. So suddenly somebody like Daniel Nestor, he wasn't really competing with other guys in all the different areas because he was, he was much better at returning serve than most double specialists. He had a much better serve because he's left-handed. So uh, I think that's a, a huge difference where Mark Knowles, just a normal guy, uh, average uh, sort of looking tennis player, but with no weaknesses whatsoever – Uh, and very difficult to be the best player in the world when you have to compete with the whole field. And, yeah, I agree, Andy. Mark Knowles, obviously, is a great guy, but uh, unbelievably good Dallas player, and I would say overlooked.
0: I'm going to get to my final point here, which is what I consider to be somewhat of an underrated and overlooked rivalry, and that was the one between Andre Agassi and Patrick Rafter. And Steve Flink made the point earlier in the show that a normal rivalry, not like a Djokovic-Federer rivalry or, or, or Nadal-Federer rivalry where you're talking about 40 or 50 meetings. But this was a 15-match rivalry. Andre won 10, Patrick Rafter won 5. But in majors, Patrick beat him three times out of five, uh, and they played three semifinals in a row at Wimbledon, uh, Andre beating Rafter 5-6-2 and two in 99, and then Rafter winning 6-3 in the 5th in 2000 and 8-6 in the 5th. Uh, in 2001, and actually also beat Andre in the 97 U.S. Open in the round of 16. And if memory serves, I think Rafter also beat Sampras in uh, route to that victory at the U.S. Open, his first major win. So Rafter versus Agassi, I always found to be very compelling tennis to watch on TV. Match your recollection of those two guys playing it on the grass.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great contrast of style. Um... Patrick Rafter is most probably the last, the last singles player to do really well with great athleticism, amazing volley technique, and not great ground strokes. I hope he's not listening uh, from wherever he is, but basically shocking ground strokes compared to his serve and volley game, but unbelievably good attitude. Great guy, which usually comes with a good attitude on on a tennis court. And Andre Agassi, who really despised going to the net. So the contrast of style is perfect. You had to be a great athlete to stay alive against Andre. Patrick Rafter was that. You had to be an unbelievably good service returner to be able to hang with Patrick Rafter. Andre Agassi was that. So I think on any surface, that would be a great match. Although... If it's too slow, I believe that Agassi was too good for Rafter. But a faster courts at the U.S. Open in Wimbledon, perfect situation for the contrast of style. I agree. Great, great matches.
0: Johnny, when you think of Rafter, I agree with Matt. You think of a guy that sort of jumped off off the ground, hitting those forehands and just sort of patchworking a ground game together to somehow hang with Andre. A nice slice back in, but he always seemed like he was sort of fighting from behind the eight ball in every rally that they had. But what is it about the Australian mentality that maybe makes you feel like a guy like Rafter could leave a match with Agassi and then just jump into the water out there in the bush and wrestle with an alligator, just that kind of mentality that would allow him to take on somebody that was so superior from the ground and not give into that and actually come out on top of not one, but two fifth set semifinal wins at Wimbledon against Agassiz, who by the time they had played, Agassiz had won that tournament.
3: Well, those are uh, really amazing results that that definitely are overlooked. I think the thing about Patrick Rafter, um, you, you, he did have a great slice. I mean, he had a great slice backhand, came in on that shot um, so effectively. But um he I think what 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 enabled Patrick Rafter to have the results that he had, and he and he got them later in his career. Um, He really blossomed and peaked later in his career, had just amazing results, beat uh, Sampras uh, a couple of times in some big matches. But I think two things stand out for me with Rafter. The first being the athleticism. I I think he might be one of the best athletes that our sport has seen ever. I mean, the guy really was just a superior athlete. And then secondly, I, I think this guy had a, a tremendous amount of confidence, I think he really believed in himself, he believed that he could win these matches he wasn't intimidated and so I think when you when you package that together with that aggressive style of play um, I don't think it's a surprise that the the results that he had which were which were uh, really really strong
0: before we check out tonight on underrated and overlooked, we would be remiss not to at least. Uh, make mention of the fact that as a show, kickservradio.com uh, is putting out our best wishes for everybody who's dealing with with so much strife with what's going on in the world. And I think we should point out that Coco Goff came out and made some very mature, very adult comments uh, over the past couple of days. And if you haven't had an opportunity to see her speak, Whether you agree with her comments or not, and certainly on this show, we're talking tennis. We're not trying to take political stands on anything. But you have to admire the fact that this young lady at age 16 is willing to come out and speak on behalf of something that she has great belief in and and do so with great conviction, uh, very articulately uh, for a young lady of 16 years of age. She is fast becoming the face of the women's game, both on the court and off. And, Matts, we'll give you the last word tonight. What were your thoughts on what you saw from Coco Gauff coming out this week and speaking um, in a peaceful protest manner?
2: Well, I think what I saw there is exactly the same person I saw on Wimbledon Senate Court last year. Uh, the maturity that she showed in those comments and the way she delivered her speech, I really like that That Coco Gauff is out there and showing showing us that she's way more than a tennis player. But because she is, she's going to win a whole lot more than just a regular tennis player.
0: Extraordinary maturity. Very, very impressive. Johnny, we'll give you the last word because Mats and I want to thank you for what you did this week in placing 24 massive billboards around the country promoting KickServeRadio.com, putting our name in lights, Matt's picture. It's great. We appreciate it. Talk about where the billboards are and where people can see them because we're kind of a big deal now because of you.
3: <laughs> Johnny. it's my first billboard. Is that right? I can't believe that. Yeah, I got seven stamps, never had a billboard. Uh, uh, well, we've got American Outdoor and Pacific Outdoor, two two companies I'm involved with, and I really want to thank the the guy, the folks at both those companies for helping us out with the billboards. But we do have mats up in bright lights in Las Vegas and in San Diego, Oakland, Seattle, Portland, and Denver. So so we're in some major markets. Hopefully we'll get, get a few plugs from it and it'll uh, get some more uh, listeners to our show. Great job, Johnny. Thank you. Happy to do it
0: yes absolutely well we're taking this thing seriously we we want to turn this thing into a big deal we hope you're enjoying what you're hearing so far on kickserveradio.com hope you enjoyed underrated and overlooked again we want to thank the great joel drucker the great steve flink two of the most famed and uh impressive tennis journalists that our sport has to offer mats vielander former number one in the world seven major championships mats thanks so much we appreciate it johnny great job tonight and uh We'll be back in two weeks, but in the meantime, everybody, hope you enjoyed Underrated and Overlooked on kickserveradio.com.